week's guest is Ron McKinley, who joins us from Toronto, Ontario. Ron is the executive chef of Canoe Restaurant, where he works closely with producers, gatherers, and suppliers to create dishes inspired by Canada's diverse landscapes and its distinct provinces. Ron has worked in many places globally, such as Scotland, Australia, and the Middle East, and has learned and worked alongside acclaimed chefs Tom Kitchen and Scott Pickett. We have a terrific conversation with Ron where we discuss how he got into cooking, his love of rugby, and his current role at Canoe, plus many more topics. Enjoy the show. Okay, we're back with another episode of the Industry Podcast. My name's Kip. This is Dan. How's it going? I'm doing well, thanks. And how are things going with you? Everything's good, man. Working, working, working. Nice, nice. Yeah. yeah. How's the uh, January, February timeline's been for you guys? February is just as busy as January? Surprisingly, yes. I don't know what's behind it, but we're not going to look a gift horse in the mouth. Good business for both months, shockingly. Perfect. Yeah. Good to hear. So hopefully we keep it rolling right through the spring. Mm-hmm. Speaking of that business, if you're in the neighborhood, Kitchener Waterloo, the two bars that I own, Sugar Run is a speakeasy in downtown Kitchener. And Babylon Sisters is a wine and cocktail lounge in uptown Waterloo. So check out those places. New menus on the horizon. By the time you're listening to this, we'll have new menus at both spots. New cocktail list at both spots already. So come check us out. I think that's all I need to say about that. If you uh, want to be a guest on the show, then you're going to want to hit us up at info at the industry club, or you can DM us at the industry podcast on Instagram. That's also the place to get a hold of us for sponsorship. You should subscribe, rate, and review. Yeah, that helps us. Mm-hmm. I think that's it. Uh, we should give a shout out to Zach Hanna, as always, for the artwork, zachhanna.co. And aside from that, we have a busy show uh, today, so we're just going to get right to it. Ron McKinley is joining us right now, the executive chef of Canoe Restaurant in Toronto. How are you doing, Ron? Yeah, good, guys. Good, good, good. How are you? Doing well, doing well. Thanks very much for coming on the show. Yeah, no, pleasure, pleasure. Thanks for thanks for uh, getting me out on here. Yeah, so um, we'll just start at the beginning. Um, uh, we, we've taken a read through your bio that you sent us, and uh, I was kind of interested in like how you sort of got into the culinary, culinary profession at the beginning was sort of through the culinary program, but decided it wasn't so much for you. Yeah, I think I think the problem with culinary programs, or at least it was back in my day, was there was a lot of sitting and a lot of reading. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> if, if, if you've ever met any chefs, most of us aren't really into that. So yeah. <laughs> that didn't work for me. It didn't work for me at all. And it really put me off. It put me off the bat, you know, right away. So it just didn't click and it wasn't for me. So I kind of, I kind of shied away from it for a while. And then you know, did my own thing and realized it's probably the only thing I'm good at. And um, I, I have a, a genuine passion for it, which I didn't realize at the time. And I kind of fell back into it later on. So I definitely, I definitely tried, tried to go through school because, you know, at you know, straight out of high school and whatever, that's, you know, that's stereotypical. That's what you do. You go, you go, you go to higher education and you figure something out. And yeah, it didn't work for me. So when you were in high school, did you find that it was the same thing? You just kind of a restless student or... Yeah. Yeah. Again, high school wasn't a fit for me. I mean, I was good at sports and, and I was good at art. So those were the two things that kept me going and kept my, my, you know, uh, got me to graduate, you know, but other than that, you know, sitting down in math class or English or anything like that, it just nothing. It, it interests me. Right. And if I'm not interested in something, I just don't, I don't give any effort to it. So yeah, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't my place. It's definitely not, not, not a high school, high school and School in general wasn't somewhere that I was, I was, um, you know, it wasn't, wasn't my cup of tea. Mm-hmm. But you did play rugby. I definitely did. 
that, that, that was my cup of tea. Just, you know, <laughs> you know, put, putting the cleats on and, and being able to hit people and run around and, and stuff like that. It made sense. And I guess in the long run sports and, and, and hospitality just makes sense. Cause the, you know, there's order, there's, there's a method to the madness and sports in general, when I was growing up, it was just something that was comfortable for me. So uh, I guess that kind of, you, you meet a lot of chefs now too, that played a lot of sports. And I guess, you know, having that, having that a coach in your life or someone just to tell you that you're either, you know, you're either doing good or you're not doing good. Very blatantly mm-hmm. made, made sense to me. And um, it carried on in, in, in chefing. I think a lot of the coaching I had when I was younger and playing at a high level was the same when I went to work for chefs that were pretty good. You know, they, there was no bullshit It was either you mm-hmm. did, you did something really good, good for you, or you did something really bad. And, you know, not, not so good for you. Right. (laughs) It's also like gives you that sense of teamwork too, right. Which is vital in the kitchen. Well, that's it. Yeah. I mean, uh, no, no team. There's, there's no I in team and that, that makes a lot of sense in the kitchen too. Even now, you know, you can, you can see my name on the menu, but I can't do any of what I do without the team behind me whatsoever. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's easy to cook a piece of meat, but to do that for 200 covers a night and put it on a plate and have people impressed, you need a, you need a whole team behind you. And that's the same on the pitch or on the rugby field. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's, there's always a couple of rock stars in the team, but um, without, without the guys pushing on and, you know, working those hard, long hours, you can't do any of it. Mm-hmm. So uh, most, most of our listeners are going to be familiar with canoe, obviously. Tell us a little bit about like your team at canoe. Like how big is it? How many people are, do you have working on the line on say like a Friday night? Yeah, it's pretty, it's, I mean, a lot of people are, 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 kind of surprised when they see how big it is because we do have a big open kitchen and the customers can see but what they don't understand is like a friday night service for us we will have let's see one to three one to three nine probably about 12 cooks plus you know my my senior team as well like there'll be myself and two other seniors um and that's just for the restaurant itself but then we also have a team behind that's doing a lot of the butchery work Plus, we have two private dining rooms that are kicking off most nights and lunches as well. So, wow. I mean, we'll do, say on a Friday night, we'll do 200 covers in the restaurant alone, which will include, you know, 70 to 90 tasting menus of eight courses. So there's over 2,000 plates leaving the kitchen, oh, plus God. two private rooms where we'll, where we'll be doing up to 30 or 40 in each room. And we do catering for the TD executives in the same building. So, and that's just dinner. You know, lunch will flip. We'll do 100, 125 covers just for lunch alone, Monday to Friday. Plus, we have the two dining rooms and, again, for the TD executive suites. And we'll flip and then go straight into dinner service. So it sounds like a lot of staff. And, you know, lunch lunch will have, you know, probably about 10, 10 to 12 staff for lunch for the main dining room. And, yeah, again, for dinner time, we'll flip into about 12 to 14. But when you put that in you know, perspective of how many covers we're doing and how many customers, it's not – it's no different than, you know, a 50 cover seat restaurant having, you know, five or six, you know, right. cooks in the kitchen yeah. too. Yeah. Right. So it's multiplying. Uh, yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. So yeah, we, we have a big brigade and, um, but it's never big enough to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Just that. Well, I can imagine uh, sort of what I'm curious about too, is like for you personally, like how many hours a week are you putting in there? It's gotta be nuts if you're doing lunch and dinner like that. I know you're not on the line on, on all times, obviously, but executive chef i imagine there's scheduling menu planning inventory like all the yeah there's all that but that that's that's where delegation comes down to it but i I try to do i mean i try to be online every lunch and dinner i call the i call the line as much as i can wow but to say that i mean i also have a a really strong senior team that that is there with me doing it we kind of all do the hard yards together hours a week i mean god a lot 
I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm there a lot. My senior team's there more than I am and, and our cooks do a lot of hours too. So, but I mean, at this level, if you're, if you're counting the hours and worrying about that kind of stuff, you should probably be in a different environment to be fair. You know, everyone talks about this work-life balance and, and, and it's true. You do need it and you do need to figure out what you want to do in your time off and figure it out. But the only work-life balance I have is just realizing that what I like to do is my life. So you have to be just smart about what you do in your time away to 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 make what you what you're doing at work, you know, what you want to do. I mean, I still get up every morning and I want to go to work. And the day that that stops happening is when I need to reassess how I'm living the lifestyle that I'm living. But yeah, that's a, that's an interesting point because, like, I don't like there is a big thing about work life balance, especially more recently when we talk about it. And like, I'm mm-hmm. I, I also I'm old now. I grew up in the industry front of house rather than back of house, but we never thought like that. It was just like you know, you go fucking put in the hours. That's how you make your money. Mm-hmm. And that's how you do it. But now it, there's so much more conversation revolving around work-life balance. But I, I, I think that you're right. Like to, in order to do what you do, you better love it or do something else. Right. Because you're not going to have that balance. Yeah. You have, you have, yeah, you have to, you have to love what you're doing. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not in like back in the day, we'd be in the kitchen at eight in the morning and leaving at 1am or whatever. And you know, things like that, have changed you know mm-hmm. there has to be an attitude of work smarter than harder and we definitely implement that as best we can but um you do need to love it and you do need to just you know you have to be be honest with yourself in this this industry if you want to work at a higher level there's going to be hours that come with it but that's also dedication and pride on what you're doing and it's not to say that you know i don't want everyone working a 14-hour day it's you know the, the industry is changing and you have to realize that the workforce coming up is not expecting that and you have to look at that and figure out what changes can be made so you, they don't have to go through what you went through but mm-hmm. you know you're not going to be and i wouldn't be very good at what i did if i only wanted to clock in nine to five that's not fair to the team working under me they're not there to they're not there for the you know they're there to learn and if mm-hmm. i'm not there and my senior team is not there teaching them um, they're not even going to respect me. So what's the point? It's give and take in, in both sides of that, I think. Mm-hmm. You mentioned uh, working smarter than harder. Without You certainly don't have to divulge anything that you don't want people to know. But like, are there have there been any specific innovations in the culinary world that have enabled you to work smarter than harder? Oh, culinary world. I mean, everything from, you know, simple things like sous vide and, and utilizing yeah. that in a smarter way. But without taking shortcuts, I think at the same time, I mean, you know, back in the day, if we were going to use a game board, we'd roast it to order. But now, you know, we'll take the we'll take the breast off and we'll poach that before service so we can have it out in a five, four or five minute pickup time. You know, things like that is is working smarter than harder. But at the same time, there's a lot of hard work behind the scenes before yeah. service. So yeah. smarter prep, than harder prep is, is the still, key, right? Like well, prep that, is the key it. with everything. Yeah. It's a, it, exactly. We can start something at, you know, a day or two in advance so that service is, is quicker and, and not as painstaking, you know, mm. but you learn that the hard way, like five years ago, I wouldn't have said that. So right. uh, I learned that through some very difficult services and, you know, we're, we're still evolving and changing as we go. And I haven't, you know, when I took on canoe, I'd never worked in a, in a, in a kitchen this big, I definitely blagged my way into this role, but um, <laughs> we, I, I, you know, if you met me five years ago and you met me now, or you see now the kitchen was run five years ago. And now I, I'm a completely different person. My senior team is a completely different mentality behind what we're doing. And it's ever evolving and it's changing. You know, I think the timeout during COVID made a lot of people reassess, reassess what they're doing and how they're operating, especially in hospitality. And I, for one, was massive in that I, I definitely looked at how I was 
functioning and working. And I think, um, I think we've all changed a lot for the better in many ways. I think it was a good thing that it happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm not an, I wasn't an owner, owner and operator, so I can say that. Yeah, yeah. I think if, <laughs> if, if I, if I was, I would be, you know, I, I'd be speaking a little bit differently, but I think right. as a whole, the, the industry needed that halt and we needed to, to stop and have a, have a look. And I think it will benefit us in the long run, not right now, but in the long run, 10 years from now, I think a lot of changes will happen because of this reset that's occurring right now. Hmm. Yeah, in terms of like staff, is it tough to recruit staff? Yeah, and it is. Keep them and retain them as well? Yeah, retention is the biggest thing. I mean, we're in a privileged position now. Like you said, a lot of people know of the restaurant, mm-hmm. but it's it's still not easy to get the right people in the door. We can get yeah. we can get Lots we can get 20 people. It. We can get 20 people every day coming in for a job if we wanted to. But out of that 20, most of them won't be the right fit or um, really realize what they're walking into and the skill level they need to have just to have. I mean, we, for instance, I put an ad out for, for a sous chef and the amount of people that would apply for it, it's ridiculous. And, and, you know, it's great that they're applying, but most of these, sous, these so-called sous chefs that are applying, they, they couldn't outcook one of the cooks on my line. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's a bit crazy out there right now. I think, I think there's a, there's a lot of titles being thrown around and a lot of money mm-hmm. being thrown around to people that aren't skilled. And then the problem with that, it's, it's these unskilled people take these jobs and they start training the next generation. And it's a full circle of problems that keep happening. And, and um, like, I get it from, from a business perspective, people need to hire and put people in these roles, but at the end of the day, they're, they're not, they're not set. They're not ready for the role that they're taking. And we, like you said, retention's big and I've been very lucky. My team has been, the majority of our team has been with us for quite a while now and you know they're still they're still there and they're still pushing and 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 working very hard and it's that keeping them is is the biggest priority and keeping them entertained and keeping them wanting to show up every day you know if their attitude's not good or you can tell that they don't want to be there that's not a it's 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 horrible for the um the morale of the team too Mm -hmm. it is hard right now it's a brutal time for even finding people i the last resume i got this was legit he had had one job in the service industry he's been working at swiss chalet since january of this year (laughs) yeah that's the thing that if i was insulted man what do you i know (laughs) they just don't they a lot a lot of the people just don't understand that yeah what it takes to work at a certain level. And, and, and like, like you said, yeah, you get, you get, you get a resume like that. We get them all the time and (laughs) there's, you just can't even entertain it. It, I know there's no, there's no point. No, but we are, you know, we're very lucky with a lot of the people that we get in. Um, A a lot of the young kids that we do get that stick around for a while, they, they might not be as skilled at the beginning, but their attitude and their willingness to learn. If you have a good attitude and you're really willing to learn, you can move up very quickly in a kitchen. Yeah. You know, it's not, it's, it's not, you know, it's, it's not brain surgery. It, it mm-hmm. is cooking. It's a lot of learning the basics and being okay with repetition and having some patience and being willing to go through a service. And yeah, you might get bollocked. You might get, you might get a lot of shit thrown at you during a hard service, but do you come back the next day with that same energy and want to do it again? I see that, you know, yeah. our senior team sees that. And then you, re- you respect that. And then you're going to go places. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but it's very hard to find that person nowadays. Yeah. But after a while you can recognize, it. I know what you mean. Like when you see somebody, you see the work ethic, you're like, okay, I can work with this person. If they stick it out, they'll be okay. But you can tell, exactly. right, you can tell right away. Uh, let's back it up a little bit and talk about how you got to where you are. 
So, okay, so the culinary school thing doesn't work out for you. Where do you go from there? I I just left. I uh, I got a, I got a good opportunity to just go play rugby overseas, so I took it. I went oh, okay. I, um, I went and moved to New Zealand and played rugby over there in oh, in wow. Auckland. Cool. Uh, yeah, it's it sounds cool, uh, and it was, <laughs> <laughs> and it was cool. I mean, as a nineteen year old, eighteen, nineteen year old kid, going able to you know to leave home and go play rugby in New Zealand, it's amazing. Yeah. Um, but I mean, yeah, an amazing experience, and I'm glad I did it at the time. You know, ignorance is bliss, right? You just say yes, you jump on a plane. But like the room I lived in was it was horrible. Like the door had no hinges on it. For underneath the shower, like I lived in a player's house, which was just off the field of the rugby club. You know, it was a very well-known rugby club, and and it, again, like I said, the experience was cool. But even the shower, like you looked the side of the shower, you could see the floor beneath you, like it was just a shithole. Um, <laughs> you know, and and yes, I was over there playing and living for free and all those cool things. But I also had to scrub the showers and and, and the urinals in, in the changing rooms, and uh, you know, it was, it was humbling. And I didn't mind it; I didn't care. I don't mind hard work. Um, but like I said, it just sounds, it sounds cooler to just say, yeah, I went yeah. and played rugby in New Zealand too. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. the reality was, <laughs> there's I went a lot there, more to I, it. Yeah, yeah. And there, there's a lot more to it. And I got my ass kicked too. Don't get me wrong. Like that's like a, that's like someone from, you know, someone coming from overseas to come here to play hockey. Like it's right. the Mecca. Yeah. So you learn, you learn pretty quick that you don't know what you're doing. But again, I think that mentality was instilled. That was a good mentality to have instilled in me um, to flip the switch one day when I went back into cooking. So yeah, I went to New Zealand and, you know, played a couple seasons and then came home and basically blew up my shoulder, couldn't play anymore and had to figure out what the hell to do. And that's kind of how I fell into cooking, really. Right. And so, but you did end up going back overseas to cook. I did. Yeah, I was. Uh, so after the shoulder thing, I came back home for for, for a wee bit and um, I did cook in Vancouver for like a year or so, I think. And um, I didn't know what I was doing. I was just cooking for the sake of cooking because I could do it. And uh, I, I actually ended up going through uh, sound engineering school oh. for a bit because I, I was really into music and like post production and stuff. And but again, you know, I'd be at school doing that, paying bloody expensive too. Mm. Um, and I would just be looking at food on the on the internet all the time. And and my attention span, again, sitting in front of a computer wasn't my thing. So I ended up working at a restaurant, and I was working with a guy, and he started telling me about Michelin and and what it was. I had no idea. And uh, then I just kind of looked into it and realized that it was easy for me to get a passport because my grandfather was from the UK. Uh, he's from Scotland. So I applied for my passport and that was it. I, I kind of applied at a bunch of Michelin star restaurants over in the UK, got my foot in the door and just packed my bags and went. Nice. So what was the first place that you worked at when you went over there? Definitely wasn't a Michelin star restaurant. It was um, <laughs> the only place that except I, I wrote, uh, I, this was before I knew how to copy and paste in emails. So I individually wrote over 80 one-star Michelin restaurants outside of London in the UK. And only one one got back to me, which makes sense because, you know, at the time, a lot of places didn't even know that. This was 2005. Only one got back to me. The only one that did, and they offered me a job right off the, right off the go, was uh, in an island off the coast of uh, the UK, actually off the coast of France. But it was um, part of Britain in, in the Channel Islands in Guernsey. So there's like, there's four islands. There's, what is it? There's Jersey, Guernsey. They're the two bigger islands and Herm and Sark. And these, like, I think Herm's still only horse and buggy. There's not even any cars in this bloody place. So oh, wow. it was pretty remote. Yeah. So I, so I went to Guernsey. I was there for about nine months just to save up some cash. And then uh, realized I just didn't like it there. 
And then I got in a car with a mate of mine who was going to go travel Europe for, for a few weeks. So we, I think we just traveled. We drove around Europe for about a month, just getting into trouble and doing what you do when you're, what, 25 years old. And uh, then we got on the ferry in, where were we? We were in, we went to Amsterdam. And when you're, you go to Amsterdam when you're 25, you shouldn't stay there very long. Like it's just, it's too easy. To, yeah. It's too easy to get into trouble. And and then we ended up in Rotterdam on the coast. And he, uh, because we had our car, we got on the ferry, got into Hull on the East coast, of, East coast of England, East coast of England. And uh, he's like, right, I'm going to go, I'm going to go back to London. And there was a bus going to Edinburgh and I wanted to go to Edinburgh because there was a chef there I wanted to work for. So I just got on the bus and that was it. I went to Edinburgh and um, that's kind of where I, I stayed for a while. So that's how I got to, I mean, it wasn't my first time in the UK because obviously I was in Guernsey, but like proper mainline UK was, was then. Mm -hmm. Edinburgh is a pretty cool city from what I understand as well. Right. Like lots of Edinburgh is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Edinburgh is awesome. I I love it. I've been back many times since I left. I mean, I lived there for over five years, but yeah, it's awesome. I mean, if you, if you're ever out that way, you have to go. It's a pretty, it's a pretty beautiful city. So talk to us about the sort of uh, the stuff you're learning when you're, did you end up working for that chef that you were trying to I did. For? Yeah. Okay. So yeah, tell me, tell, what are you learning when you're working for uh, like this top chef in Edinburgh? How to take a, how to take a verbal, how to take a lot of verbal abuse. Um, <laughs> yeah. So this, this was 2006, I think. And this was still very much in the heyday of, you know, old school mentality kitchens and you know, do it right or don't do it. And I mean, I won't get into any stories because I have a lot of respect for this guy. And I don't want to, I don't want to get into getting in any trouble, but right. So that was Tom kitchen and not to name his name, but that was Tom kitchen. Uh, and that was Edinburgh, uh, in Leith, uh, a restaurant called the kitchen. What I was learning there. I mean, everything, I kind of relearned everything from, from, from the start again, because anything I'd learned before was kind of just not the right way to do things. Everything he did was done properly proper technique, no corners cut, just really hard graft. I mean, we were in there from, you know, on a Friday, we would get in there early at 7am, put garbage bags over our chef whites and clean the entire kitchen from start to finish before 8am when the delivery started showing up. And then we'd be there till 1231 in the morning. So that was hard graft. Like it was proper cooking. We'd have We'd have hairs, woodcock, snipe, teal, you name it, all this different game coming in every morning from a gamekeeper that shot it that morning. Um, No shit. That's crazy. (laughs) Yeah, we learned, I learned everything. I learned, you know, everything from, you know, just proper organization to, to how to really put your head down, how to work through being tired, not how to learn how to not complain, you know, just get it done, get the job done, do it properly. How to you know, really respect who you're working for. Cause I definitely respected him and I still do. We're still in contact to this day. Yeah. That, that place taught me a lot. I owe a lot to that, to, to him and to that, that time in my life. Cause if I, again, that's one of those jobs where every morning you get up and you go to work, you question what the hell you're doing this for. Cause it was not easy and it was not enjoyable at the time. I, I would say in the first year that I was there, we probably went through like 60 or 70 chefs. Like we, wow. people were just walking out of the door every day. It was brutal. It was hard, but you know, I mean, the ones that stuck around and the ones that still lasted through that kitchen and did their time, there's like four or five of them now that I could name that are all incredibly successful and doing their own things. Cause you know, that, that, that was a place to to do that and to learn and how to, you know, actually cook. Like we were cooking mm-hmm. pro- proper. There was no, there was, you know, there was no sous vide. There was no fancy gadgets in that kitchen. There was just, you know, 
pans. You have a pan, a spoon, a towel, and a hot oven, and that was about it. And the food that we were cooking was, you know, proper classic stuff. So that was a definite game changer in the trajectory of my career. Pretty interesting thing to think about now, too, because, like, again, kind of growing up in the same sort of era where, you know, like, if you, uh, like, even at the front of the house, if you're fucking up, you just kind of got yelled at and whatever, right? Like, that's how you trained a proper bartender as well. And, like, I don't think we need to go back to those times, but I do feel like there's something missing from the newer generation where, you like, the you need a, sort of a, a toughness and a will to get through it that you don't necessarily get if you're kind of babied. Yeah, I think the difference would I, I mean, yeah, and I definitely don't think kitchens need to be like that anymore. And and he definitely doesn't operate that way anymore. I mean, he's, he's, he's learned and, and, and as so have I, but I think the difference is when I fucked up, I didn't want to fuck up again. Right. You know, and I don't see that in a lot of people now. They just go, oh shit. Yeah, you're right. I did fuck up. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah. like, Stop, stop doing it then. Like, yeah. don't do it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, 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 it really is that simple. Like, just like what you're doing is a craft. So yeah. if you're not doing it properly, you're not doing it. So why? Like, well, I, I just don't, I don't understand that. You're disrespecting everybody else around you, everybody above you and beneath you who's putting, who is treating it with the proper respect. If you don't give a shit, right? Like if you, and if you're, well, yeah. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you got like we talked about earlier about working as a team. Like if you were, let's say you're playing uh, in a basketball game and you're the fifth guy on the floor and you're just like lollygagging back on defense, well, you're disrespecting all the other people on the team who are running hard back on defense, right? Like yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think that's the biggest. That's the biggest thing. I just I I do agree though that um, you know people don't need to get you know completely yelled at all the time, but at the sure. same time they do need to be put in their place. Yeah, you know, if they're not doing it right. And and everyone reacts. Some people need a kick in the ass. Some people need you to take them aside and explain to them why it was wrong. Like everyone has a different angle to get through to them. And you figure that out when you're running a big brigade like the one we have. But you just have to figure out that angle to actually get through to them. Like I said, is is that's the hardest part. Like yeah, yeah, that's what they need to that's what they need to teach at fucking cooking schools is how to be, personalities. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, I know. Yeah. I was a hard lesson for me too when I first when I owned my first spot, because I was like Oh, just you want to treat everybody the same. And that's not actually how you do it. You want to treat everybody equally, but you need to treat them differently to their personality, right? Like, yeah, treat, absolutely. Treat, treat everybody fairly, but not the same. Like, Yeah, for sure. Some some people just react completely different in certain situations, and you have to see that and react to it before it happens. Yeah. Um, some people need on a day-to-day some, day basis. Some people need the kick. Some people need the hug. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then uh, once you figure that out... Um, it'll help you a lot for sure. So when you, after you were in England for a while, you ended up going to Australia at some point, is that directly after, or did you come back to Canada for a little bit? I did come back home, but only for a couple of weeks, just to say hi to mom and dad and get a visa. And that was it. Yeah, yeah. Basically. Mm-hmm. So, so I just came home, signed up for a visa because I was turning 29 at the time and I could get a visa before I turned 30 for, for Oz. So again, that's basically what I did. My flatmate in, and Edinburgh was was Aussie, and um, he talked me into going to Australia at the time. And there was a huge food scene kicking off in Melbourne. And again, I'm you know ignorance is bliss, so I just I just packed my bags and went. Mm-hmm. So I have been to the UK and Australia as well, and like very different cultures for sure. Like yes, so, yeah. So talk to me a little bit about like how how does the culinary scene differ in these in these two places? And like, did you end up learning different things because you were in Australia? Yeah, I mean, Australia taught me that you 
you have to really cook for the customer in many ways because there's a different palette over there. So just because you think you can cook great in the UK, if you go to Australia, you need to you need to cook different because people like eat and cook different things over there. So that that was good for me to see and learn. Um, I, I think yeah, there's definitely different cultures over there. <laughs> Aussies are, I mean, I'm not living there anymore, so. Aussies are a lot. They're, they're definitely a lot, but the food scene was fantastic. And and they have some amazing chefs there right now. Um, they have some of the best food in the world for sure. And their access to ingredients is right. incredible. Yeah. The seafood specifically, right? Yeah. Like, it, the seafood's amazing. It's, yeah. it's, yeah. it's second to none. I mean, and that's me saying a lot because I'd come from Scotland and, and, you know, Scotland seafood is also equally as amazing. It's, but it's two different worlds, you know, Scotland had amazing scallops and langoustine and shellfish. And then you go to Australia and they, you know, they have amazing fish and tuna down there was crazy. And, um, all, all these other fish that I'd never seen before. So it was, it was a really cool learning experience for me in that, in that regard as well. And from your bio, I learned that there was, they don't talk about Michelin stars back in Australia. They, what do, what do they call them? They have hats. Hats, so, right? Yeah. Same, same as you can get one or two, one, two, three stars, and in in Oz you can get one, two, or three hats. And they're, I mean, they're not the same. I mean, I wouldn't hold a two star and a two hat restaurant to the same level, but okay. um, it's still what you what you go for over there because they don't have the the Michelin rating system. So um, they definitely have places that are worthy of two and three stars in Australia, one hundred percent. But uh, yeah, those, those, that's the rating system there. So it, I mean, it, I mean, it works for them. How do you feel about the rating systems in general, having like worked in like pretty much all over the world in like Michelin star or hat hat rated places? Um, like what what is your feeling about how the, the fairness of these ratings, the accuracy, whether it's something to strive for? Yeah, I mean, well, this year Michelin didn't give us a star, so fuck them. Yeah, um, <laughs> uh, I think I think the fairness. I I, I mean, look, I, I still have a lot of respect for Michelin, and that, that's kind of what I've. Don't get me wrong; I still want a star like everyone anyone would, right? Um, and we're still pushing to get one every day, but it won't change. You know, we didn't get one, but it's not going to change what we do, and it's not going to change how we operate at all. Um, I do think uh, Michelin. They're not changing with the times as as much as I'd like them to, like but there so. is. Well, for instance, what they did in Toronto and Vancouver, I, I think they missed the boat in a lot of places. And, you know, all the places that got a star here in Toronto definitely deserve them. They're all very good, very reputable. And, um, you know, eating at any of those places, you're eating in a Michelin restaurant for sure. But what they didn't do is there's no place in time. You could eat at any of those restaurants. You could be at any city in the world. You're not going to know that you're actually in Toronto or in Canada. And I think I think Michelin should be... You know, there's, there's there's restaurants in this city that are such a good representation of this country and this city that people coming here to eat at a Michelin restaurant should leave knowing where they've eaten and where they are. And they completely missed the, missed the boat on that one, uh, it, that, in my opinion. And, you know, it's the first year of them being here. So next year, you know, they might do a better job of it. But, yeah, I don't, uh, you know, a lot of chefs nowadays don't hold Michelin to the same standard that I did when I was a kid coming up through kitchens. And I think that that changes things people aren't as worried about getting michelin on their cv as they used to be so i don't know if they i don't know what michelin's doing if they're if they're planning on you know looking at how the stars are rated or ranked but nobody knows what they look for you know there's no mm -hmm. there's there's no book that says hey michelin, you need to do this 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 and this to get a star so they can do what they want but i've never eaten i've never eaten at a one or two star that i've walked away from and said they weren't deserving of one so Okay. I mean, they 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 still pick and choose properly, 
but I do think they miss places for sure. And of course it's going to be subjective, right? So like, there's no way to judge it just by like with a, by the book ranking, there's got to be some subjectivity that comes into it. Oh, there has to be. Absolutely. And they need to visit a few times. You know, everyone can have a bad service or a bad day. They need to see the, you know, the the averages of, of it coming through. But, you know, again, a a company like Michelin this year alone, they've sprouted up in so many different cities across the world, but like, Who's to say that the judges they're hiring now are even competent? Like, how can you hire that many people to do these many um, restaurants across the world? Like, to to work for Michelin, you got to know what you're talking about. You, you, you need to you understand. Think. Yeah, y- you would think. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, I mean, but, I think there's there's a lot sorry, of negatives yeah. and a lot of pluses to Michelin. Mm. A lot. Um, but I think it's great for the industry. I think it's amazing for Toronto to have them here. I think it's going to yeah. bring in, you know, it's going to bring in business and it's going to bring in culinary talent from across the country. It's good for Toronto. It's good for Vancouver. It's not so good for the other provinces that don't have it because um, it, it will suck talent and, and um, hospitality staff from those provinces. Oh, right. Yeah. You know what? I never thought about that, but that's obviously that's what it's going to do. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and I will say it's better to have at least like, you know, if like, like a Michelin reviewer or whatever they call themselves is coming to your uh, restaurant, then you like ideally or probably they are a qualified person as opposed to the fucking keyboard warriors who just come to your restaurant and then don't complain about anything, then go home and write a shitty review online. So yeah, they're the, they're the worst. <laughs> they're the worst. They, they, they are, they are the worst. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, of course. I mean, there's going to be some level of, you know, um, due diligence behind what they're doing and how they're rating. Um, I'm not trying. And, and of course, like I said, we didn't get one. So I just sound like a bitter fucker over here, but we're, we're still pushing and striving to get one and we want one. And, but if we don't get one, like I said, we're still going to keep doing what we do and we're proud of what we do every day. Um, anyways, but you look at the smaller restaurants and they have a better chance of, you know, we like, we're busy, man. We do 150, 200 covers a night. Mm-hmm. You have a, like a, a smaller, you know, 40, 50 seater restaurant, the consistency and and the the day in and day out of of you know excellence that you can achieve at those smaller numbers is definitely more going to be more realistic for right. sure. Yeah, yeah. And at the end of the day, like speaking as someone who's in the ownership side, I'd rather have the busyness than the star. So, of course, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Of, course, of course, you would. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, the I mean, I want one so I can you know I can, I can hang it on my CV and just sure. be proud yeah. of ach- achieving it. But at the end of the day, we're we're busy every single day, and that's so it's want. not going to. Yeah. Yep. It's not going to change. It's not going to change our business levels. We can't get any busier. Uh, we'll let you get out of here pretty soon. We've kept you for a while. So thanks for that, Ron. But uh, I did want to ask you a little bit about going back to Australia because there was one specific chef that you worked with that you kind of followed around a little bit there. So tell me what you learned from him. Yeah, Scotty. Scotty Pickett. He's yeah, he is um, probably the most talented chef I, I, I ever worked for in many different ways. Um, I, I worked for him for almost, God, five years, I guess. I mean, I've been most of the chefs that I worked for, I worked for for a very long time because I, you know, I picked ones that I wanted to work for for a reason mm-hmm. and I could learn a lot from. Um, Scotty or, or Chefo, as we, we lovingly, most people call him. Yeah, he was nuts. Like, he uh, he has a presence when he walks in the kitchen, you know, he's there. He's full on and you either love him or you don't. Like, you, there's there's no there's no two ways about that with, with Chefo. I loved him. Still do. Again, you know, we even flew him out a few years ago and did like a, a mentorship dinner here with him um, at Canoe, which was oh, amazing nice. and pay a little bit of respects to him that way. But yeah, he, I worked for him at his first restaurant that he owned. He was owner operator. And then I went on working my way up from there 
helped him open his other restaurant and became the head chef there. And like we talk about hats, we got two hats there. And now, God, he has like, I'll probably lose count. I think he has like six or seven restaurants now, plus a restaurant in the airport. And like, he's on TV all the time. And Mm. he's a, he's built for it. Like he's a character. You put a, you put a microphone in front of him. He won't shut up. Like he's, (laughs) he's, he's, he's he's charismatic, incredibly talented. You know, he's great for the industry. You need people like that to keep it kind of going. And yeah, I, you know, I'm really proud of the time I did with him. And I still think, I still think very highly of him. So Scotty Pickett. Yeah. I think he's like the president or something for Bokutor Australia now as well. And he's just doing better and better and better. He's, he's a bit of a weapon. Mm, that's awesome uh yeah and you're right we do like the the industry does need like i know a lot of there's this whole era of the celebrity chef and then the celebrity bartender and it got a little bit out of control but at the end of the day it does it does help the industry in the long run we do need people who want to talk about it and are charismatic right yeah i mean you need it people need to see that and want to aspire to be like that right Mm because if you're not positive about the industry that you're in then you're going to talk badly about the industry. And and that's the last thing hospitality needs right now. Like we should be, you got to find people that are still excited about it and still trying to push it and make it better. And um, having, having people like that around and that are in a position in their career where, you know, they're on TV and they're talking about it and they are successful. I mean, it it needs success stories and he's definitely one of them. So you're right. Yeah. yeah, The industry needs that. It's very important. And like letting the younger generation, like you mentioned, know that these are cool jobs and creative and you can be like you can make art in in a kitchen or behind a bar if like, if you're if you're a creative person and you want to dedicate yourself to it. We need those people preaching that for us. So it is good that they exist in the long run. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like there's a lot of kids like me. Like when I was in high school, that high school just didn't click, right? You just got to find the right niche. And 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 for a lot of us, it's hospitality because there are no rules. You can you can get through hospitality in, in kitchens, front and back of house. You don't need to be book smart but you just need common sense which i should add is also lacking in the fucking industry at the moment (laughs) um, justify (laughs) yeah but it goes such a long way you know what i mean and it's it's just simple things done well and i think that's that's where we need to start and um but i think the industry in a whole is coming back after having a lot of shit happen to us i think it's coming back it's going to be stronger and we just need to figure out ways to get the to get the next generation in and and use some of their know-how to make it even better. I think that's the next thing to do. Well, that's a perfect spot to leave it. Ron, tell us, uh, tell our listeners where they can find you social media wise so uh, they can follow what you're doing. Yeah. So I'm pretty active on, on, on Instagram there. My things RW McKinley at, at, at there's no at is there no it's at rw mckinley you can see how fucking good i am with the social media stuff <laughs> once you um, set it up you don't have to worry about it anymore <laughs> yeah 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 yeah. i'll just tag it in the post don't worry about yeah. it so yeah i mean I, I i'm pretty active on there showing what we're doing at the restaurant and uh you know the, like behind the scene things and techniques and this and that so we have we have a bit of fun with that and and that's kind of about it other than that i'm just i'm, I'm just at work a lot i'm there all the time well, I can tell you, yeah. I I follow you, and it's a good follow. There's lots of you're doing lots of cool stuff on the Instagram, so people should check it out. And yeah. we we always put the, the, the links in the show notes, right? So. Yeah, thanks to Dan. Oh, nice. does, does this work for us? Mm-hmm. All right, Ron, thanks so much, man. I appreciate you coming on. I know you're a busy motherfucker, so <laughs> we yeah. appreciate you yeah, yeah. giving us a little time. Awesome, thanks so yeah, much, thanks. and uh, yeah, best of luck with everything. Nice, thanks, fellas. It was great. Thanks, Enjoyed. man. Thanks, Cheers. buddy.